what happens when the cross becomes the filter through which we look at everything? When we look through the cross, very literally, the world is turned upside down. Things that used to make sense really don't make sense anymore. And the things that don't make sense to the world suddenly become a foundation for our living. You know, the world teaches us to think in certain ways, but then suddenly the cross is laid across our lives, and suddenly we begin to see things quite differently. That's why during this Lenten season we want to focus on the cross, but we want to focus on wisdom, and tonight we're going to talk about unconventional wisdom, wisdom that doesn't make any sense to anyone except for those people whose lives are governed by the cross. I've been a Christ follower for over 60 years, and I know that the cross lifts us to a higher wisdom. The cross lifts us to greater understanding. The cross is deeper truth, and it guides us in all of God's ways. I want to go back just to a few verses of what I read to you before from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Isn't that interesting? The cross doesn't make any sense to a lot of people in this world. It says, but to those of us who are being saved, this cross is the power of God. And he goes on and says, but for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Some time ago... Uh, the topic of the day on the Oprah Winfrey show was having affairs with married men. And in that show, Oprah brought together a number of uh, women who were currently having affairs to get their comments on how they felt about it. One lady responded very positively, uh, saying that her affair with a married man had been a long-standing one, and she was very happy in it. But then someone in the audience raised the question. They brought up the question of morality. And very quickly, that woman took offense to that question. And she said, wait a minute. I'm a Christian, but I want everybody to know that my personal life and my religion have nothing to do with one another. I believe in a God who wants me to be happy. And if this man makes me happy, then God must approve of that relationship. Now, I find that absolutely amazing because I'm not sure where she found that. You know, I've been reading my Bible from front to back for many years. I have never, I've never even found a passage where it even intimates that God's purpose in our life is to make us happy or to even condone an adulterous relationship. But you know something, that kind of thinking, stinking thinking is not all that new. It's been around for a long, long time. I mean, people have always wanted a God who will place his stamp of approval on their lifestyle. Now, I used to never think that until people started coming to me when I was a pastor. It's amazing how many people over the years have come to me, described a lifestyle that they were involved in, and then they looked at me, and I looked back at them, and a couple of times I said, so you want me to tell you that's okay? I've had a people went... Uh-huh. I said, no can do. I, I can't put a stamp of approval on it. 
In fact, today we've got all kinds of uh, euphemisms to make all this stuff sound right. Now, in, in my grandma's day, I remember this, you know, we used to call it living in sin or shacking up. But today, what do we call it? We call it having a meaningful relationship. You know, what used to be called self-indulgence is now called self-fulfillment. What used to be called chastity is now called a neurotic inhibition. And what used to be called killing the unborn, today we call the right to choose. But it's interesting to me, Jesus encountered that same sort of attitude in his day. He looked at the scribes, and the, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he called them hypocrites. I love that Greek word, hypocrites, to have two different faces, like a smiley face, a frowny face. They were two-faced people. He also called them whited sepulchers, which I suppose we should translate into English. They were whitewashed tombs. They appeared to be very pious and prayerful and obedient to God on the outside, but inside they were absolutely rotten and stinking. Well, people are like that today. I mean, that lady on Oprah's show was just an example. You know, we want a God who doesn't really uh, that require any changes in us, and who kind of puts the stamp of approval on everything we do, just as long as we kind of show up in church on a somewhat regular basis and put some money in the plate. Now, that might work for a while, but sooner or later, we always end up bumping into the cross, the old rugged cross. And you know, every time you run into the cross, you meet a God who says, you know, I don't approve of the way that you're living. I don't like your sin. In fact, I find your sin so horrible, so evil, that it absolutely requires that I go to the cross to suffer and die for that sin. That's why Paul could say, you know, the Jews stumbled over this cross. It was a scandalon. That's the Greek word. It was a scandal to them. And it said the Greek people thought this was absolutely foolish. But then he said, there's a whole other group who say they see in the cross the power and the wisdom of God. And when I read that text and I picked out that text a long time ago, I thought, yeah, we've got the same kind of people in the world today. I mean, think about it. We, have, we still have Jews. Let me tell you about the Jews in Jesus' day. Uh, they looked at the cross and they stumbled over this because they did not see the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And that's strange because the Jews had actually been handpicked by God to receive the Messiah. He had watched over them. He had protected them. He prepared them to be the nation through which the Messiah would be born. But when they suddenly saw the Messiah, when Jesus came and said, I am he who you're looking for, they rejected him. They crucified him. In fact, the Bible says Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. Now, Paul in the text says they stumbled because the Jews demanded miraculous signs. Now, I just got done teaching see through the scriptures to a hundred or more people down in Haiti. And we talked about the Old Testament. We talked about the prophecies of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it said that when the Messiah came, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the dumb would speak, and the lame would walk. Guess what? Here was Jesus in front of them. And suddenly the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, the dumb were speaking, and the lame were leaping. Cleansing lepers, casting demons, ministering to people, meeting their needs. But you know something that kind of just went right over their heads? 
because those weren't the kind of miracles that they wanted to see. They wanted miracles of power, and they wanted miracles of success. They wanted a Messiah who would be kind of like a Rambo, who would come in and and beat up on the Romans and establish the kingdom of David. I mean, if, if Jesus would have come in on a big white horse instead of a donkey, and he would have led them in battle and, and, and slaughtered a whole bunch of Romans, uh, he would have shown himself to be successful and victorious, and they probably would have marched behind him. But again, the cross got in the way. You know, if you study the cross, whether it's one like this or one you may wear around your neck or you see one hanging up in front of you, the cross does not necessarily look like success or power. The cross doesn't look like victory. It it actually looks like weakness. It looks like failure. It looks like defeat, and so people keep stumbling over it. It, it, The cross of Jesus just gets in people's way. And not only did they have a false idea about the Messiah, they had a false view of salvation. I mean, they thought that the way to salvation was through their own righteousness, how good they could be. So they kept busy keeping the law. In fact, the Pharisees, you heard this last Sunday, they didn't just have Ten Commandments, they had 613 of them. And they honestly believed that if they could all keep all 613 commandments, the Messiah would come back. So they were busy day after day running to the synagogue at their appointed times, just at the right time. They said their prayers loudly so that everybody could hear their prayers. They dropped their money in the collection boxes in such a way that people could hear the money going in so it would draw attention to them. They appeared to be very pious and prayerful and generous. And as far as they were concerned, they didn't really need a savior. After all, they had the rules. They didn't need anybody to die on a cross for them. They thought the way to salvation was through their good living, which they kind of carefully designed to fit their own liking. And as a result, they just kept stumbling over the cross. Those were the Jews. Guess what? We got those folks around today, too. If I'm good enough, I'll make it in. Don't really need the cross, don't really need Jesus. As long as I'm a pretty good person, I'm in. But you know, Paul also talked about the Greeks. In verse 22, he said, the Greeks wanted wisdom. I mean, they were the uh, brainiacs of their day. Uh, They produced guys like uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and my favorite, Anonymous. Actually, that's a joke, bad joke. But they were great thinkers. And many of these people we still read today. Uh, For example, Socrates, for example, said, The secret to a successful society is education. If we could just give everybody a good education, then it will follow that the world will get better and better. Now, that ought to sound somewhat familiar because we hear the same thing today. Uh, We've been told by generations after generations, in fact, I just heard a president of these United States say, cut anything, but don't cut education because everybody needs to be at education because the more educated we'll be, the better off we'll be. Uh, but you know, that's not necessarily true. Now, I'm certainly not opposed to education, but it's just that we can learn everything there is to learn and still have a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw is called sin. In fact, the 17th chapter of the book of Acts is a very interesting story. 
It's about when Paul came to the city of Athens. Now, the Athenians used to sit up on the top of this place called Mars Hill in this building that's called the Areopagus, and they would sit there all day, and they would share with each other their profound thoughts. And, and Luke says, they told each other everything new. Now, I don't know if you could just picture that. A bunch of eggheads sitting around telling everybody what they thought was really cool and neat, and along comes Paul and starts telling them about a God who was unknown to them. He said this God came to earth, this God walked among men, this God died on the cross, this God rose again. And when they heard that, they basically laughed at him. I mean, after all, I mean, reason tells you that babies are not born to virgin girls. I mean, reason tells you that God, who is a spirit, doesn't really become flesh. I mean, reason tells you that the almighty God would never allow puny men to nail him on a cross. I mean, reason tells you that no man ever dies and then comes back to life again. I mean, none of that makes any sense to the rational mind. So the Greeks looked at this cross and they said, this is foolishness. And see, they had a, a different concept of salvation, too. The Greeks believed that their soul was immortal. Therefore, when they died, if they were good enough, they got to stay and hang around with all the gods. But if when they died they weren't good enough, then they could be reincarnated as something else and be given another chance. And they could keep doing this over and over and over again until finally they get it right. I mean, that way, to a Greek... It didn't really make any difference what you believed because you were eventually going to get saved. Nobody is lost, according to the Greeks. You keep being reincarnated until everybody is with the gods. I mean, they didn't need a savior. After all, everybody was going to be saved. So when it came to this cross, this was foolishness. I mean, why does anybody have to die on a cross? After all, we're all going to make it out at the end. I don't know, does that even sound familiar? You know, we're hearing that same kind of nonsense yet today. I mean, I've heard some really, I think, well-meaning Christian pastors, I, I'm not going to pass judgment on their Christianity, but who would tell you that, you know, there are many ways to God. And we just happen to have one of them. And they completely ignore what the Bible says about I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we're still sinning the same sins. We're still thinking the same stinking thinking. We're still stumbling over the same cross. We're still laughing at the wisdom of God, and we're still treating it like foolishness. You know, what's interesting is the man who wrote these words, Paul, actually tried it both ways. I don't know if you know that. He tried being a good Jew. I mean, he actually said he was the Pharisee's Pharisee. I mean, he even got to the point of committing murder because he thought that was doing the right thing. And yet when he tried to keep all those rules, all those regulations, when he tried to make it himself, he always ended up empty. We also know from the Bible that he studied with the finest teachers. I mean, he was trained by the, by the smartest people growing up. And when he learned everything he could hold, he was still empty. And so in one of those rather anxious moments, he's on the way to Damascus to fulfill what he thinks God wants him to do, which is to gather up and kill some other Christians. 
He sees a light that he's never seen before. He hears a voice that he never heard before. And in the seventh chapter of Romans, Paul opens his heart and he says, I now understand what's right and what's wrong. Let me repeat that. He says, I now understand what's right and what's wrong. I find that a particularly amazing statement to make because the world today still hasn't figured that out. I mean, we're trying today in year 2011 to say that what used to be right is now wrong and what used to be wrong is now right. That's how confused we are in our society today. But Paul says, I know what's right. I know what's wrong. And he went, he took it a step further. He said, now, I understand. I, I really want to do what's right. I really don't want to do what's wrong. But I got a problem. When I get ready to do what's right, there is a power within me that tries to overwhelm me. And so I often end up doing what's wrong anyway. And it's from the depths of his souls, he cries out. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? Now, it sounds pretty hopeless, but then he, he gives his, his own answer. He says, but thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. See, it's Jesus Christ who does what? Relieves the burden of our sin, takes away our anxiety, replaces that anxiousness with peace, uh, takes away the despair that we have, replaces it with hope, takes away our sadness, replaces it with joy. See, God accomplishes that which was impossible when he went to the cross and he died for our sins. He did something for you that you could not do for yourself. Did something for me I couldn't do for myself. And it's kind of hard sometimes to explain, but we know it's true. See, that's the invitation that we as a church need to continue to offer. This is, this is the invitation that we need to continue to share with other people outside this church it's an invitation to come and stand by the cross during the Lenten season. To see that one who suffers there, who dies there, and to submit to the one who says, friends, I don't like your sin, but I'm here ready to forgive you. And to prove that I'm sincere, I will pay the price for your sin if you accept it. I'll grant you pardon, I'll forgive you, and I will love you for all eternity. Now, I've got to tell you, that is unconventional wisdom. That doesn't make any sense at all. Actually, for somebody to say they'll die for you in all of your sins is a preposterous proclamation. Actually, the cross is a preposterous proclamation. It makes no sense whatsoever. And there are some people for whom faith needs to make sense. They, they have to be able to understand the workings of God. And if they run into a mystery that stands in contradiction to science or knowledge or conventional wisdom, they're thrown off track. They choose to believe only what they can see rather than what they cannot see. And see, the cross proclaims nothing but mystery to some people. But friends, know this. God calls us, he calls you and me, to come and die. He calls us to live by this cross and to allow this cross to inform every decision and every judgment we make in life. Now the question is, does that make sense? No. Does it bring worldly blessings? No. 
Is it the center of our faith? Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we know the message of the cross is foolishness to some. It's foolishness particularly to those people who are perishing. But to us who know you, who are being saved, it is truly the power of God. What a challenge you've left for us, though, Lord, to explain the cross as best as we can in our human language to people who stand outside. But we want them to be able to experience the same thing, to come to the wisdom that enables life to be even better. Lord, be with us as we strive to meet that challenge. In Jesus' name, amen.